Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This episode is part of our Minute CE curriculum. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements, as well as the learning objectives. Hi, my name is Joshua Royce. I'm a thoracic medical oncologist and assistant professor of medicine at Georgetown University School of Medicine and the MedStar Georgetown Lombardi Cancer Center. Uh, and today I'm pleased to be joined by Dr. Jessica Donington, uh, Chief of Thoracic Surgery at University of Chicago. Uh, Jessica, that's nice hey, to Josh. see you. Josh, nice to see you. Thanks for inviting me. Of course. Uh, and in uh, today's discussion, we'll be talking about adjuvant immunotherapy for localized non-small cell lung cancers. So obviously a lot of data has exploded uh, in this population. Um, thankfully, we now have a lot of options for our patients. And in today's discussion, we're going to focus specifically on the adjuvant therapy options for our patients and how those are fit into the sequence of other possibilities. So to start on a case, uh, so uh, this is a patient, a 75-year-old patient with a history of prior tobacco use, chronic atrial fibrillation on a pixaban and hypertension who presents to you for a medical oncology consultation following resection of a localized non-small cell lung cancer. He originally underwent a chest CT for intermittent chest tightness that revealed a 1.3 by 1.3 centimeter left upper lobe lung mass. Uh, PET CT showed that this mass was hypermetabolic, SUV 4.4, uh, but revealed no hypermetabolic lymphadenopathy or distant metastatic disease. A bronchoscopic biopsy of the left upper lobe lung mass uh, was positive for a TTF1 positive adenocarcinoma. Uh, however, left hilar subcarinal right hilar lymph nodes were all negative for malignancy. So this did appear to be a, a very early stage non-small cell lung cancer. This patient subsequently underwent a robotic left upper lobe lobectomy with mediastinal lymph node dissection with pathology revealing a 1.4 centimeter invasive mucin producing adenocarcinoma. Margins were negative with no lymphovascular invasion, but two of 12 lymph nodes were positive uh, for malignancy, both peribronchial, with final disease stage uh, of a PT1B and one stage 2B non-small cell lung cancer. Uh, NGS testing revealed a KRAS G12C mutation in PDL1 of 60%. And the question, and what we will come back to, is what is your recommended systemic therapy approach for this patient? So that is a good segue to move into a discussion of our adjuvant therapy options that we have for patients uh, who do not have driver mutations. So uh, the first trial I'd like to discuss is the EMPOWER-010 study. This was a large phase three clinical trial that evaluated patients with completely resected stage 1B to 3A non-small cell lung cancer as adjudicated by the AJCC seventh staging edition. So a little bit different staging than our eighth edition where perhaps some of these stage 1B are, are now considered stage two. Um, but other than that, uh, some a very similar population. Uh, patients enrolled to this study received one to four cycles of histology-specific chemotherapy, and subsequent to that, were randomized one-to-one to, -one to atezolizumab immunotherapy or best supportive care. Stratification factors are listed on this slide. And the primary endpoint was tested in a hierarchical fashion. First, a disease-free survival in the pdl one positive stage 2 to 3A population, then DFS um, in the entire randomized stage 2 to 3A, and, and so on and so forth. So what we've known now for uh, over uh, over a couple of years is that adjuvant atezolizumab did improve disease-free survival in the primary efficacy population that is the pdl one positive, so 1% or greater staining, stage 2 to 3A population with a hazard ratio of 0.66, favoring atezolizumab over best supportive care. 
When looking at the subgroups, you could see consistent benefit across disease stage, lymph node status, perhaps less clear benefit in those who underwent bilobectomy or pneumonectomy, though I will say the large majority of patients in this study did undergo lobectomy. And then an interesting signal of uh, a gemcitabine regimen uh, perhaps being uh, not quite as prominent benefit. What's interesting, though, is that it appeared while while this results ultimately led to aducanetezolizumab being approved for this population, so being approved for those with stage two to three resected non-small cell lung cancer that's PDL1 positive, you can see that the DFS benefit appeared to be largely driven by those with high PDL1 expression of 50% or greater, where you can see that hazard ratio, really quite prominent uh, benefit of 0.43. And then when looking at the one to 49 and then the negative, uh, really not a clear separation from one. Similarly, while we don't have overall survival results for this trial yet, you could see clear separation of the curves here uh, that is primarily also driven by that high PDL1 population, 50% or greater, where again, we see an interim overall survival hazard ratio of 0.43. But again, we, we still await further data um, for the long-term overall survival results from this trial. The next study I'd like to discuss is the phase three PEARLS or Keynote 091 trial. So some similarities and notable differences between this study and the EMPOWER 10 study. This, like the EMPOWER 10 trial, did enroll patients with stage 1b to 3a non-small cell lung cancer as assessed by the TNM AJCC 7th staging edition criteria and had some very similar stratification factors. However, uh, in this study, chemotherapy was not required, um, and it was just recommended for those um, where it is otherwise indicated. And then patients were randomized rather than from uh, intervention to supportive care. In this case, patients were randomized to pembrolizumab versus placebo. And there were dual primary endpoints in this study, one of disease-free survival in the overall population, and then secondly, disease-free survival in the pdl one high 50% or greater population. So when looking at this was also a positive trial, and you could say in the overall population, there was a DFS benefit seen uh, for pembrolizumab compared to placebo with a hazard ratio of 0.76 favoring pembrolizumab. And based off of this data, the FDA has approved adjuvant pembrolizumab uh, irrespective of uh, PDL1 status uh, for those with resected stage uh, 1b uh, to 3 non-small cell lung cancer. But when diving a little bit deeper into the data, you could see here some interesting subgroups. Number one, uh, benefit more clear in those who received adjuvant chemotherapy. Now, this might be reflected of a higher stage population that had higher risk for recurrence, but I think it highlights that immunotherapy does not replace chemotherapy here. We know that there is an overall survival benefit for chemotherapy after surgery, and we don't view immunotherapy as replacing the need for the chemotherapy. The benefit was also more pronounced in those with non-squamous compared to squamous histology. And then when looking at the PDL1 status, uh, there were some interesting trends here uh, that we want to uh, discuss uh, in, in greater detail. So what was interesting is that this study did not meet the second primary endpoint of improved disease-free survival in the PDL1 high population. And what's interesting is that numerically, pembrolizumab performed quite well um, across the board. Uh, but what was interesting is that the placebo arm 
also perform better in those that were PDL1 uh, high. And we don't tend to think of PDL1 as being positive for improved prognosis. In fact, if anything, we tend to think the opposite. Um, so this was just one interesting wrinkle from this trial. I personally don't view that pembrolizumab has any less benefit in those with high PDL1 status, but just the data is the data. And that was an interesting point from this study. So when looking just at some key uh, key information about these trials, just this is a summary slide for your reference to that highlights the design of the studies, the percentage of stage three populations, and then some of the disease-free survival hazard ratios broken down by PDL1 status, and then ultimately the FDA approval um, for adjuvant uh, atezolizumab, which as I mentioned is PDL1 positive stage two to three A disease, and then uh, adjuvant pembrolizumab, which is stage one B to three A, uh, irrespective of PDL1 status. So as we move into our, uh, get close to our discussion here, there are just some interesting questions, I think. And one, number one is who is adjuvant uh, therapy most appropriate for? I think absolutely like the case that we highlighted in the beginning, post-surgical upstaging, where you think it's an earlier stage uh, cancer, but then at surgery, you realize there were occult lymph node metastases that, that were not uh, diagnosed on PET or bronchoscopy. Uh, patient provider preference and discussion is important, and then also concern for tolerability of a neoadjuvant approach. And then there are many important unanswered questions. You know, what's the ideal duration of adjuvant therapy? Who truly needs it? As I tell my patients, you know, I I don't know if, if, if adjuvant therapy is curing you. I don't know if you were cured by surgery alone or the chemo or the immunotherapy. We need better tools to assess this. And again, what is the best way to monitor treatment response? Uh, and then lastly, what do you do at the time of recurrence? If someone recurs on adjuvant immunotherapy, what, what's your next steps? So there are some studies looking to assess this. One is the MERMAID-1 trial, which is looking at patients who have undergone resection uh, and then randomizing one-to-one uh, -one based off of residual MRD, meaning minimal residual disease detected on blood, um, to uh, chemoimmunotherapy, in this case, dervalumab with chemo or chemotherapy alone, with a primary endpoint of disease-free survival in that MRD-positive population. A similar uh, yet somewhat different trial, the MERMAID-2 study, is looking at patients who receive appropriate adjuvant therapy and then once off therapy, determining who has MRD-positive disease, meaning residual, minimal residual disease, and then randomizing these patients, those who don't have gross recurrence, to dervalumab or placebo. So some very important trials uh, that will hopefully help to tease out what treatment is best for which patients. So just to lastly revisit the case, um, as we discussed, this was a patient that had uh, upstaging at the time of surgery to stage 2B non-small cell lung cancer with uh, lymph node involvement. Uh, based off of the NGS profile, uh, there was no contraindications to immunotherapy, and this patient actually um, went on to receive four cycles of uh, platinum doublet chemotherapy, followed by one year of pembrolizumab. His course was complicated by grade one pneumonitis um, uh, that was not clinically significant, but did warrant a brief cessation of immunotherapy. And I think highlights that these therapies are not benign. Uh, immunotherapy, there are patients that can experience significant toxicities. And at this time, he continues to remain occurrence-free. So with that, I'd like to welcome back in my colleague, Dr. Jessica Donington. Um, and so Jessica, I guess my first question for you is, um, in, in your practice, where are the scenarios where you're typically seeing adjuvant fit into the treatment approach? Are there particular patients where you're recommending this from the outset? Or is it more common a case like this where there's surgical upstaging and that's really when the therapy is indicated? I would say in our practice, in my practice, um, I tend to do a lot of neoadjuvant therapy. I, I do like three cycles as opposed to 12 cycles. I like having the tumor in place for uh, an immunotherapy. 
Uh, that being said, surgical upstaging is a real thing. I mean, it is not going to go away. You know, with PET, CT, EBUS, all those things, this kind of one to one and a half centimeter tumor, we expect upstaging in, you know, 10 to 12% of our patients. We just, you know, we don't, we don't see every cell that has spread. So this is, I think, you know, a kind of that poster child uh, for adjuvant therapy. And I would most definitely be sending this patient for adjuvant. And I think the fact that, you know, obviously we need NGS in all of these patients now that we have such good, you know, targeted therapies to use in this space. But without that, um, I'm, I'm thrilled to have another, you know, another piece to add for these patients. Uh, I think the PDL1 less than 50% and the PDL1 negative are definitely, you know, a lot more of a discussion uh, about benefit or not benefit. I don't know. How does your group feel about those kind of low expressors or non-expressors? Yeah, no, it, it's it's a good point. I think, you know, kind of the way that the data fell where the the adjuvant atezolizumab, that PDL1 high population seems to be where where there's that clear benefit. And that was where the benefit was less pronounced in the PDO um, in, in the pembrolizumab trial. I think there's almost kind of a natural separation there where you can, you know, prescribe adjuvant atezolizumab after chemo for the PDL1 high and for the other populations, you know, consider uh, pembrolizumab. You know, I, in my practice, I, I'm not inclined to withhold pembrolizumab, even if PDL1 negative. I mean, I don't think we've really teased out where there's who has a true benefit and who doesn't, you know, uh, that population um, still didn't clearly not benefit, you know, in the PEARLS uh, keynote trial, um, you know, outside of those who have, you know, clear autoimmune disease or or, or some, where, something where we wouldn't really want to risk the immunotherapy. Uh, but I think we still need more data here. Are, the, are there patients that won't benefit from this? Are there those with other, you know, molecular profiles where we actually need to escalate the therapy to additional IO agents to some kind of novel antibody drug conjugate? I think those are open questions. So with that, I, th I think we're going to conclude uh, today's session. I, I want to thank uh, Jessica for this really insightful discussion and um, looking forward to additional topics. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you. You've been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is jointly provided by Global Learning Collaborative, GLC, and Total CME, LLC, and is part of our Minute CE curriculum. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com slash CME. Thank you for listening.